Well, we're going to turn to our scriptures. Uh, the Old Testament passage is Isaiah 61. We'll be reading verses 1 through 3. Of course, a portion of this passage the Lord actually read uh, when he was in the synagogue. But we're going to read through to verse 3 here of this passage. Isaiah 61 beginning at verse 1. Listen here to God's word. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and proclaim to, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Amen. Our gospel reading will be found in Luke chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 67 through 79. As it's entitled in your Bible normally, it's Zechariah's prophecy, and it's concerning his son, but it's also concerning our Savior. So listen here to God's word. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. And then our primary text for today is found in Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 12 through 18. Listen here to God's word. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing 
so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain." But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Amen. This time I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and silently meditate upon God's word that we've read this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to express our love to you and as well as our need for your grace and your presence among us today so that we indeed might hear the very word of God in such a way that it will transform our lives and draw us to a closer walk with you. Lord, allow your spirit to move and powerfully work through your word so that we might not only become your fruitful people, but that others in that fruit might come to know Christ and in knowing him, no life eternal through our witness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll remember last week, I made a statement to you that was an either-or statement. I said to you that there's really only two ways that we can live. It's either self-centered or it's Christ-centered. Now, our world really tries very hard and attempts to tell us that there are many things that we can live for. And that may be true to a point, but the way we live at its core will either be for self or for Christ. And with that in mind, I'd like to ask you a question this morning. What have you been living for this week? Or this past month? Or as you look back on your life through this year? What have you been living for? And the reason why I'm asking this question is because we're all making investments in this life. The investments of our time, our money, our interest, as well as our efforts. And I tell you this, as you look at how you spend your time, your money, your interests, involved in the efforts that you put forth is the true answer to that question. Is it not? We 
If we are living self-centered, our investments will be mainly self-focused. If we are living Christ-centered, our investments will concentrate on the Lord and His values for our lives as well as how we impact the lives of others. It really isn't rocket science, beloved. It is really this simple. Jesus put it to us in this light. He said, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Or in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, he says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The Apostle Paul, in the earlier part of this chapter, has shown us how we, as believers, are to live together. We are to live in oneness of mind, of love, and of spirit, and of one purpose. We are to live humbly before one another. Not looking out for our own interests only, but also have a genuine attention for the concerns and needs of others. As he pointed out there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, we need to get over ourselves. And in humility of mind, have this attitude of Christ in us. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is the source and as well as the supreme example of how we're to live this out. This attitude, for it was, while he was on this earth, his attitude. We understand this because as God, he became a man. And in the person of Jesus Christ, he dwelled among us. And in those later verses of chapter 2, verses 6 through, through 11, we find out that the pre-existent Son of God became a man. He became incarnate. And he went through this, this attitude of self-mortification of himself to become a bond slave. So that he might become obedient to death, to give his life as a self-sacrifice to make atonement for our sins in his body on that cross. But it also told us that, that there is indeed this glorious resurrection that has happened to him and his ascension into heaven and his exaltation because Paul told us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Paul brings us out in another letter of his in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 where he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be made rich. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ committed himself to humble himself even to the point of death, even death of a cross to save us from our sins. And so now Paul is telling us and exhorting us that we need to commit our lives to Christ. In verses 12 through 18. This commitment of ours to the Lord, he tells us in these verses, will manifest itself in three distinct ways. In verses 12 and verse 13, Paul exhorts us to faithfully obey God as his blood-bought children, his beloved children. You notice that when we read it, it says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. You see, Paul is giving to us, as he was to the Philippian believers, practical faith responses to what Jesus Christ's example means to us. We're to have the same humble obedience to fulfilling God's will for our lives as Jesus demonstrated in his own life when he came to this earth and suffered and died for us. Remember, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you and for me. To obey God is better than offering sacrifices. Our response to what Jesus has done for us is to simply follow, if you will, his pattern of obedience by humbly trusting God's will for our lives as he obediently did his Father's will while he was on earth. And I'd like to say that for many of us, we think that that's something that we can choose to do or not to do. But I'd like to tell you from this scripture that there is no substitute for believers in Christ. We've been bought with a price. We are to glorify our God in heaven. 
We are called to follow in his train. We are called to take on that pattern of obedience that Christ demonstrated in his own life and death for us on the cross. We are called to live in sincere obedience to God. And we can see here, even in Paul's letter, that the Philippian believers got it. Because one of the things he was pointing out at the earlier part of this letter is that it was characteristic of these believers because they persistently participated in the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Just read Philippians 1, 5 and 6. But there are reactions to what I'm talking about that we need to realize. You see, for the natural man, for the unbelieving man, this is a repulsive concept. And the reason why it's repulsive is because of the position that it places a person before God. In other words, they are no longer their own. They're no longer able to do what they want to do. They're no longer able to go where they want to go. They need to follow what God has mandated in his word and follow him. And it is repulsive to the unbelieving world. It is too restrictive. It is too esoteric. It is too heavenly minded. I've even heard people ask me the question when I've presented this in another context. Do you mean to tell me that my whole life is to be nothing more or less than a life of obedience to God? Do you really think that's what God's calling me to do? You better believe it. That's exactly what God has saved us to do. To be obedient children to our Heavenly Father. Through Christ, through His saving grace, through the power of God that is in us. Yes, that's exactly what Paul is urging these believers to do. For the believers, we need to understand that this is the way of life now. And that's why Paul says here later on that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who's at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul uses the present and imperative, second person plural of this word, work out. And its meaning is to work it out to its goal. It means to work on it until it is finished, it is completed. But he also says something else here that we need to hear. 
He tells us in this passage that we are to do it with a genuine sense in our spirit, in our minds and hearts, uh, having a, revel, a reverential fear, a chilling awe that we need to get it right before God. Why? It's because God is at work in us to see it to its appointed end. It ties back to what Paul said there in Philippians 1.6, did it not? He who began this good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. So this concert, if, if, you, if you will, of us working and having God work in us is what we're supposed to be living out by faith each day of our lives. Us working, God working in us so that we reach the goal. I'm always reminded of some passages that really caused me to realize that I need to fear God. Like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, where it says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or, as the writer of Hebrews says there in, in chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, he says, our God is a consuming fire. Or as Paul reminds us there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. But I'm also reminded of the warning that the writer of the Hebrews gives us in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where he says, don't come short of this. Be and the ones that come short are those who hear the word, but it does not profit them because it is not united by faith. Beloved, we here who are in Christ have been given a tremendous wonderful gift. A gift of eternal life. And we are now indwelt by God's Holy Spirit so that we can live in newness of life. We're not to rely on our own abilities, beloved, but on God who is working in us as we work with him to produce the fullness of our salvation until the day of Christ. And we're to work it out. This new life that we have in Christ by God's grace and by the power of the risen Savior that we follow. Commentary on this said it this way. God is in me, working the willing and the doing. 
but it must be done in the same attitude in which Christ demonstrated by his own life. It's an attitude of humble submission to the a will of God, just as a servant is humbly serving his master, we too need to serve our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. We were once enslaved in bondage to our sin. Now we're to be slaves of righteousness unto God resulting in sanctification, being set apart, as Paul talks about there in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 22. This is the perfecting, if you will, work that God is doing in each believer's life so that we might become holy and blameless before him. Peter wrote about this in his first letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 17 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy, And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Paul is exhorting us that we need to faithfully Obey God as his beloved children. The second thing that he brings up is in verses 14 through 16. For here, Paul exhorts us to resist all the rivals. All those things that would oppose us going in this direction. So that we might shine brightly as true lights of the Lord amid the spiritual darkness and decadentness that is so present in this sin-laden world. You know, one of the things I love so much about Christmas is not just the beautiful flowers and arrangements that are here, and thank you, special services, for doing that. What a beautiful arrangement here we we're enjoying. The thing I love so much about Christmas is the Christmas lights. Don't you just love to see all the houses dressed up in lights? I remember there was a place there uh, down on, um, it was down in Will Grove area. Can't remember the name of the road right now, but there was a guy there that put up so many lights, he must have started in September. And it probably took them till March to put them down again. Fitzwatertown Road, that's where it was. You could see that probably from a satellite. There was so much light. And there were so many things to watch and so many things to observe. 
And a lot of it didn't have anything to do with Christ's birth. But it was amazing what this guy did. I can't imagine what his electric bill was. But it was an extraordinary thing. In fact, every year, my parents would take us as children to go see this growing decoration of lights. Well, you know, you want to know the one thing that'll kill the light that God has in your life? It's what Paul talks about here in verses 14 through 16. When he tells us to do all things without grumbling and disputing. So that we will prove ourselves to be blameless, innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life. I'd like to say that I'm always shining bright for the Lord at Christmas time. But that would be a lie. Because though I enjoy all the lights of Christmas, I don't enjoy all the traffic of Christmas. In fact, there's nothing more exasperating to me than sitting unnecessarily in traffic. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you. I am so, especially in shopping, I am so driven to get done what I have to get done in order to get it done that sitting in traffic drives me wild. Well, used to. Although if my wife was here, she probably says it still does. And I'd have to repent of it. It's the same way with you, though. How about when you're putting up lights in your house or on your Christmas tree, and you get them all strung up and you plug them in, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, one of them goes out and they all go out. How do you like that? I see the looks on your faces. Yeah, you've, you've had the same exasperation that I have in traffic, Right? And what comes out of our mouth? Grumbling. Disputing. What will kill the light of life in Christ more is when we begin to selfishly think about how our lives are being impacted by the things that are in the world. He tells us very plainly, do all things without grumbling and disputing. In other words, we are to abandon that type of response to the circumstances that may frustrate us in this life. This abandon complaining, abandon quarreling, these attitudes that really stem from the flesh, from self, and our own unreasonable opinions. Whenever you read a letter that's written to you, you need to understand that it's written to you. (laughs) 
Obviously, one of the problems that the church had back then is similar to what we deal with today. They were a people that dealt with grumbling and disputing. And Paul tells them, stop it. It causes dissensions within the body. It was probably causing dissensions within that body as well. And lest we think that it's just an isolated case with the church at Philippi, we need to know that both Paul and Peter talk about this very thing in most of the letters that they write. We need to repent from grumbling and disputing so that, he says, we can become what God wants us to be. So that we will prove ourselves to be blameless, innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It's important for us to realize that this is not just a done deal because the, the emphasis on that word be is it's, it's the state of becoming. In other words, we're all in the same process of getting rid of those old things in order to replace them with the new. To become blameless or faultless, to become innocent, uh, guiltless, uh, free from the contaminations that are so much a part of the attitudes of this world. We're to be above reproach, without blemish. And we're to do it in the context of living in the world that he says is crooked and perverse. The word crooked there is where we get the word, medical word, scoliosis, the curvature of a spine. That's what sin does. It corrupts and, and, and contaminates in such a way that it makes everything crooked. But it also makes it perverse because it turns away from the truth of God and his will for our life. It's, it's a leading us astray and we don't want to be led astray. We were led astray at one point because as Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own ways, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He says, as we become blameless, innocent, above reproach, we will shine as lights in this world holding fast the word of life. It's in this world we live. It is a world that is hostile to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to his followers. It's a world that opposes Jesus, the light of the world. And we who are his luminaries by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit as we shine for his gospel and hold fast 
The word there gives the idea is of laboring to hold on to the point of exhaustion, holding on to the word of life. It's just as Zacharias prophesied there in Luke chapter 1, where he talked about Jesus as the sunrise from on high to shine, to shine. Third point, much quicker. This last part of the passage here in uh, verses 17 and 18, Paul exhorts us to rejoice. Don't you like to rejoice? I do. Rejoice, though, amid the suffering of your faith in the Lord. We are to rejoice that we've been counted worthy of being able to stand for the Lord as lights in this world amidst the suffering that it will bring on us because we're doing it for the Lord. Paul talked about himself as a personal example here. He says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. But he says this, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. You see, Paul is allowing himself to be an example of what it means to follow Christ. That's why he could say in other letters, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Can we say the same thing? He uses this idea of a drink offering being poured out upon the sacrifice and service of their faith. And it's unique because it is the only Old Testament sacrifice that I believe, this drink offering, that was completely offered up to God. None of it, of this offering, was ever given to the priests. It was all for God. And that's what Paul is getting at. His life is all for God. He said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, I most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out, here it is, as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. It's the same exhortation that he gives to us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship, and not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may do that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. But I want you to know, folks, that the Apostle Paul 
found that being in prison, suffering for the cause of Christ, to be a time of rejoicing, not of sorrow, not of something that he regretted doing. It was something that he was rejoicing in, and he's encouraging us as believers to do the same. And it's all in the context of recognizing and realizing what Christ has done for us. Beloved, we need to spend more time looking to Jesus and not to the idiot box or the iPad or any of the other things that the world wants to distract us from spending time with the Lord. Because as we look to Jesus and really see him as the author and the perfecter of our faith, we'll understand that for him, even the joy that was set before him, he was willing to endure the cross, despising the shame, and now has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility against himself so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Well, there are three things I want you to remember. First, Paul is encouraging us to allow our lives to be devoted to one, to the Lord himself, and to obey what the Lord has called us to be in him as God's beloved children to work out our salvation as God is working out his salvation in us. Beloved, we must give God everything, our heads, our hands, our hearts, our whole being. Secondly, we need to resist all worldly rivals so that we can shine brightly as true lights of the Lord in this world, amid a spiritually darkened and sin-burdened world that needs to see the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doing that, we need to abandon the ways that we used to handle the problems and the trials and the stresses. We need to stop complaining and quarreling but to embrace behavior that is in keeping with God's saving work in our lives so that we become faultless, pollutant-free of the things of the world, and unblemished children of God in the midst of this crooked and perverse world. You see, faith does call us to prohibitive action as well as positive action and achievement. 
As Preston Taylor comments in his commentary, Philippians, joy in Jesus. Third, let us rejoice even amidst the sufferings that we may bear for our faith for the Lord. To rejoice in living for Christ through a selfless life, a life that puts God first, others first before ourselves, serving God, serving one another, so that more and more people can come to know Him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom He has sent to the saving of their souls. One more question. Are you and I ready and willing to fully submit our lives to fit into God's plan for our lives? If so, then we're on the track of being those who shine as lights in this world to people who are lost, who are living in spiritual darkness, even as the, the prophet Isaiah wrote, that we will bring good news to the afflicted, that we will bring liberty to captives, that we will bring freedom to those that are prisoners by the power of God's grace and for the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, may we do it. May we be recommitted to do it to the glory of God the Father. Amen.